We're going to read his word. I want you to stay standing. This is our passage we're going to get into today. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of God. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, and bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And in all the church, they said, amen, amen, amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you do have the name above all names. And we gather together under your name today to lift you up. Jesus, you tell us in your word that when the Son of Man will be lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. And that's what I'm praying happens. I can't draw people to you, Jesus. You can do that. But my job today is to lift you up. And I pray that you do everything with my words through the preaching of your word to to lift you high so that you're magnified, that the people see you for the God that you really are. And that you radically change their lives that you do the things that only you can do inside the human heart, that you turn hearts of stones into hearts of flesh, melt away all distractions, melt away all the things that we brought in here today. God, I pray that we're able to just come and meet with you and experience the God that you are and who you made us to be. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, guys, welcome in. Glad you guys are all here. Um, Eric, somebody, um, I'm missing a remote. So if you guys can get that up here eventually, that'd be cool. Um, I don't, I really legitimately have no idea where it is. So I trust that you guys do. Um, if not, I will pray and the slides will change. It'll be awesome. Um, no, uh, today we're actually starting a, a new kind of sub-series. We're still going through the book of Ephesians, uh, but we're kind of turning a corner because Paul turns a corner here and we're calling it odd is good. And before I dive into that passage that we just read, I want us to kind of take a step back and see what ground we've covered so that we can really get the most out of what we're covering today. All right, so if you'll let me, I want to kind of lean into some of that. So right now we've hit chapter four in this book of Ephesians. So chapters one through three, it was all God talking about who God is and who you are in him. It was all about our identity in Christ. Now we go from there and then God leans into, okay, if this is who I am and this is who you are, then chapters four through six, it all talks about, okay, here's what we're going to do because of that. And that's why I kind of, when the first thing you look at the word, you kind of see do is subliminal. Now, every time you see odd is good, the first thing you're going to see is the D and the O. And we did that on purpose, but kind of on accident. And then we realized we wanted to do it on purpose. It was awesome. So if you remember back in the identity aspect, we said that there were two words that were critical if we were gonna ever understand how to live out this Christian life. And those two words were in Christ. And that's kind of the the hinge that this whole entire letter to this church in Ephesus is hanging on what in the world it means to be in Christ. If you remember back to week one, week one, I brought my shoes out and I like to keep things simple, especially from a wardrobe perspective. I feel like Mr. Rogers right here. I like to keep things simple. So I just buy the same pair of shoes in different colors and the most basic of colors you could possibly buy, black and white. And so um, these are two, both of them 10 and a half, um, Air, uh, Adidas uh, NMDR1, I think is the exact name of the shoe. And I plan on once these wear out, I'll buy two more. Um, but the way we talked about being in Christ is kind of like this. When, when you start out in life, you're born with, with this pair of shoes. They're dark, they're black. Black representing the sin that, oh, wrong foot. Uh, 
black representing the sin that you're born into. A lot of times people think we're just born with this nice white clean slate and we just go places we shouldn't have gone and we step in things we shouldn't have stepped in and, and, our, and it becomes dark and, and stained and soiled. But that's not our reality. The Bible tells us that we are all um, part of Adam's lineage, that the Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden, that he fell. We're all by nature children of wrath. We're all by nature born into sin. We're not people who start out really good and then turn bad. You know this because you didn't have to send your kids to sin camp, right? They just were sinful. You didn't have to teach them those things. It was just in there, hardwired in. And so we're all kind of born and we're born in this sinful condition. We're born kind of walking in the shoes. And the problem with these shoes is they only can take us one location, Because of our sin, there is no way that we can walk with these shoes of unrighteousness and sin into the presence of God. The GPS, final GPS coordinates of these shoes are the courts of hell. Separation, eternal separation from God. Now, the good news is, and this is the good news of the gospel, there was this man named Jesus. And Jesus comes on the scene. And because he is in very nature God, he shows up on the scene, metaphorically speaking, obviously, with white shoes, unstained, unblemished. And he walks all the very places that you've walked. He walks through all the temptations that you walked through and were wounded by. He walks through all the things that stained you and he remained unstained by all the sins that this world had to offer. He came and not just as a God who looked down on humanity and where they walked, he came as God and put feet on the ground and walked boots on the ground where we are and lived life here amongst us and remained unstained. And in a wild turn of events, this God who walked all that life that way, at the end of his 33 years on earth, takes his shoes off and then takes on our unrighteousness, all of our sin, all of our guilt, the separation from God and the punishment from God that we truly do deserve. He takes those on and then he has his feet laid one over the other and has a nine inch nail driven through his feet by a Roman centurion guard. And he's hung on a cross to die for the sins of all mankind. And through his death and resurrection, he now offers to people like me and you righteousness in our size and says, I've got got a pair for you. Now, again, you're gonna have to turn from your old life. You're gonna put your faith and trust in me. And these shoes, this is gonna be a walk that I'm not promising is gonna be easy. I actually promise the exact opposite. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Um, If the cross and the empty grave prove anything, it proves that I've overcome this world. And you, in giving you these shoes, I'm giving you the promise that you also can be an overcomer. And he invites us to step into these shoes. And we explain in week one, this whole series in Ephesus, that that's what being in Christ is the best way I can explain what it means to be in Christ to you. It means now I have these on. Now I walk in his righteousness. Now I'm set apart to live out this this holy of God life. This is now my new identity. And what Paul does in the letter to the church in Ephesus is he then begins to explain to them their identity in Christ, what they are now because they're in Christ. And I took the time this week to read and write all these out for you guys. And it's awesome. Listen to what you are in Christ. This is, this is chapters one, two, and three of the book of Ephesians. He says, you're saints, you're blessed, you're chosen, you're holy and blameless before God. You're adopted sons and daughters. You're beloved, redeemed, forgiven, recipients of an inheritance from God, sealed, You're hopeful, you're alive together with Christ. You're saved, you're raised up with Christ, you're seated with Christ. You're his workmanship, you're brought near. You're one with everyone who is one in Christ. You're part of a new humanity, reconciled. You have VIP access to the Father through Christ in the spirit. 
You're citizens, members of the household of God. You're a dwelling place of God. You're a partaker in the promises of God. You're strong and powerful on the inside. You're rooted and grounded in love and you're filled with the fullness of God. It's a decent place for an amen. He says, that's what you are in Christ. And he lets that tsunami of grace just kind of hit us and explode on us. And he tells us all those things. And in the first three chapters, there's 66 verses. And of those 66 verses, only one time does Paul give the church in Ephesus and the church in McDonough an imperative, a thing to do. And all those first three chapters, he tells them only, only one time does he tell them something to do. And even then it's kind of weak. He just tells them to remember something. But then if you kind of turn the corner, if you've already got your Bible open, you see once he crests into chapter four, you can just kind of let your eyes begin to scan down and you see that he starts telling them some things that they need to be doing. He says, put away falsehood, speak the truth. Don't let the sun go down your anger. Share with people, be kind, don't steal, watch your mouth, get rid of sexual impurity. He tells wives and husbands and kids, all of, all of which are included in the church, what to do. And then in chapter six, to make the ante go up even higher, he says, I'm not just telling you these things to do so that you live a good Christian life and um, you know, make people happy and don't offend anybody. He says, I'm telling you to do all these things. I'm telling you who you are, I'm telling you what to do. Because in chapter six, he says, we are waging war, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, dark demonic forces and authorities that wage war against you. That's why we do this, not to live good lives, but because you're at war. And that's where we're going for the next, you know, nine weeks. And I'm excited about it. So he moves from, to summarize, if chapters one through three is all about who, who your God is and who you are, then chapters three through six is not about who, it is about do. It's about what we do because of who God is. And the reason we called this series Odd is Good is because we realize now what the church in Ephesus was realizing then. Remember, they are first generation Christians. So they didn't have the luxury that you had of growing up maybe in a Christian home. No grandmama dragged them to church. Everybody in the church of Ephesus are mostly grown ups who lived a life of sin, debauchery, did whatever they wanted, ate whatever they wanted, worship a pantheon of gods, did all of those things. And now they're coming to this relationship with Christ. And the idea of gods was not a, a foreign thing to them. Actually, there in the city of Ephesus, which is a modern day Turkey, there was one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world, the temple to the goddess Artemis. They were familiar with gods. It would have been very likely that, that people in homes and in pocketbooks and everything else would have had little figurines that, that they could have tried to rub and pray and do things to get those gods on their side. So the idea of there being a God is not something that is odd to them. But this God that Paul lays out in chapters one, two, and three is definitely an odd God. It's a God who says, I'm gonna adopt you into my family. Even though you are sinful, even though you are wicked, even though you're a child of wrath, I'm gonna make you a child of peace. See, they read chapters one, two, and three, and they find out one thing really quick, that this God, who is our God, this, this name above all names, this Jesus God, this is an odd God in the best way possible. And we called our series Odd is Good because if God is odd, then this odd God calls us into an odd way of living, an odd way of following him an odd way of living out this amazing love that he has now put in us because we are in Christ. And that's what we're gonna lean into over the course of the next 63 days. 
one of the things we're doing in this, the team and I gathered around this passage and we're like, okay, we've leaned into all this identity stuff. We lean into everything we are in Christ. How in the world do we get this like Paul? Because again, he, he leans in so heavy in one, two, three to get them to understand their identity because he wants them to live it out. He wants them to let this come out of their life. He wants them to be different on the outside. And that's our prayer for you too, that you don't just come and sit and show up at church and hear some things and learn some things or maybe feel some things and go out and live your life the exact same way that you had already been living. He wants you to actually be different. And so what we're doing for the, this is probably gonna be about a nine week series is we're gonna enter into a, a challenge that for the next 63 days, nine weeks, we're gonna invite us together as a body of Christ, as a family of Christ into something odd. Every single day, we're gonna issue a challenge, an odd is good challenge, something to do. Some days it's gonna be really odd and some days it's gonna be really deep. Some days it's gonna be normal. Some days it's gonna be unique, but it's gonna be something every single day. We're gonna post it on our social media page and we're gonna email those out. So if we don't have your email and you wanna participate in this, I encourage you to do that. Now, some of you here are going like, yeah, no, you know what? I just go to church and then I don't. And then I, and then I go home, okay? I, I, don't, I don't need all this. I have my own quiet time, the end. I'll tell you the same thing I told the first service. Whether you're old or young, you have to be aware of something. Our propensity, the older we get, is just to continue to just do what we've always done. And for those of you who are 60 plus in the room, you're probably in greater danger than the people who are on the underside of that. And I know that for those of you who may be feeling like you're actually a little bit closer to, to death, doing something new is a source of life. Getting a new wrinkle in your brain is a good thing. Practicing the presence of God in a new way and journeying closer to him in a new way is actually a really good thing. It'll keep you young because though the rhythms of life are good things and we should enter into rhythms and we should enter into habits, from time to time, we actually need to have those habits and have those things disrupted and bring new things on so that we can actually begin to experience God in a new way. And we wanna do that together. And it all leans into the simple truth and reality that we've been, uh, a drum that we've been banging a lot around here recently at MCC of spiritual formation. You right now, lowercase s, you are being spiritually formed. Your inside, your internal operating system is being formed by the things you look at, by the media you intake, by what you watch on the news, by the things that you look at when you get online. It's forming you into something. The question is, do you like what it's forming you into? Now, we as believers of God, we, we as Christians, we believe that there's this capital S spiritual formation, as in the Holy Spirit spiritual formation. And this is where we say our goal is to not let uh, Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever the, all these things are, the people that I have in school or all those things. My goal is to primarily not let them be what determine who I am and influence who I am. My goal is to allow the Holy Spirit to show me who God is and then that form me into the image and likeness of God in all of those places that I happen to go. That's Christian spiritual formation. And that, guys, that has to be practice. You can't just like roll out of bed and go through life and not be intentional and think you're gonna be formed into the image of Christ. The fruit of the spirit happen when we put ourselves in the places to allow God to do the work of bearing the fruit. And so we're gonna walk through this and I hope you would enjoy joining us in with it. You're gonna, more details to come on that. Um, we're gonna be posting that out Monday. We'll start there. It's gonna be awesome. The whole point in leaning into this dilemma between chapters one, two, three and chapters four is to help us get this critical, critical truth. And it's this, that in this Christian walk, identity comes before activity. And that who comes before do.
that I may, if, I, if we start running after the, uh, the activity, what do I need to do? Just tell me what I need to do, but we don't understand who we are. The activity will eventually drain you or it will become boring or you'll realize that you actually stink at the identity or the activity and you'll give up and you'll go back to the activities that you used to do that you hate. And so that's what we're gonna lean into. The passage that um, we start with today to kind of take us down this journey is Ephesians 4.1. If you got a Bible, please open it up. Let's go there together. Ephesians 4.1, Paul turns a corner here and begins to lean into the church in Ephesus about what they've been called to. This is the hinge point of the entire book of Ephesians. If you don't get this, it's hard to leverage what he said in verse or chapters one through three. And you're definitely not gonna be able to do what he says in chapters four through six if you don't get these few verses here. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let's just kind of break this down. One of the things we do here at MCC, we just kind of take the Bible and we go kind of word by word, verse by verse, so that you can actually understand it in a way that you can live it out. All right. So therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, this Paul's writing this, for those of you who don't know, Paul is, this is, a, the letter to Ephesus is a prison epistle, which means Paul wrote it from prison. He's there, he's uh, chained up to a Roman guard. He's not in Ephesus, he's in Rome. He's chained up to a big sweaty Italian guy and he leverages the free time that he has to write out this letter to this church here in Ephesus. And I don't know what you'd be doing while you're in prison, but this is what Paul was doing. And he's talking to this people and he says, I therefore as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Let's start at that word urge. This word urge, is actually a compound word. The Bible, uh, at least the New Testament, was written in, in the Greek language. And the Greek language there for that word urge is parakaleo. It's a compound word. Para means to, to call and kaleo means to one side. It's this beckoning. And really to think about it in the term urge is honestly kind of weak. The best um, metaphor I could give you, you know, kind of like image to what this actually looks like. Anybody know who Ron Washington is? Ron Washington, baseball coach, third base coach for the Atlanta Braves. He's a skinny, skinny old guy. Um, he's just got a nice, just like, you ever see an old person and somebody who's skinny and they're like this, and you're like, oh man, they're really skinny. And then they turn profile and they just got this cool belly. You know what I'm talking about? That's Ron Washington, you know? And, and, and I don't know why baseball does this. Not many other sports do that, but they make their coaches wear the full uniform. So it's just funny seeing like 67 year old guys in full baseball uniforms. It's, it's kind of hilarious. You know, imagine what your grandpa would look like in a baseball uniform, you know, go watch a baseball game and look at a third base coach and, and you see it. But Ron Washington, the best mental image I can give you for urge, this parakaleo to call to one side is, is not, you know, a mom with her kid behaving on the other side of the room going, that's not it. It's Ron Washington as a third base coach, wheeling the guy around first base going like this. Come on, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like that's, that's what Paul's doing. And I felt this this past, this past Sunday. Um, we had um, a teenager baptize another teenager right up here in those waters. And just without even thinking about this, this like inner jock, but I guess kind of Jesus came out of me as, as this young woman comes out of the baptism water, I, like something in me just went, let's go. And I'm like, where'd that come from? And I think it came from the same place it came from in Paul. It's this urging. Cause like, where are we gonna go? Like, why, why am I saying let's go? Well, the more I think about it, it's like, I was saying let's go to the kids in the back of the room going, let's go. Like death, you see her up in the water baptizing her friend. That's for you. Let's go, let's do this. Church, look around. Like, this is what we're about. It's not a bunch of professional pastors up there baptizing people. Like, it is us. It's our job. It's, the Great Commission is not for people who have been ordained necessarily. It is also for the whole entire church. Anybody 
Our job is to go into all nations and baptize people. So let's go. And I think that's what Paul is after. He's kind of saying, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Now let's go. I said all this to you to tell you who you are in Christ. Now let's go. Let's figure out what this looks like as we get going in this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Anytime you see walk in the Bible, it's not talking about your, uh, you know, the way you walk or your left foot, right foot. When you hear walk in the Bible, it's talking about your lifestyle. Walk is both public and private. Your walk in the Bible is from the public side of things is when your name comes up in a room that you're not in, whether it's passing conversation or deep conversation, the things people say about you and think about you when you're not there, it's part of your walk. On a private side, your walk is also the things that you know you're doing that nobody else maybe knows you're doing. The thoughts you know you're thinking. So your, your walk is a two-sided coin. It's both um, how people see and perceive you publicly and how you want to see, be seen and perceived publicly, but it's also who you are privately when no one else is walking and no one else is watching you. And so Paul says, I want you to have a public life and a private life. I'm urging you to have a public life and a private life that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I don't know about you, but right now, but like where you sit right here today, you know, do you feel like that's you? Do you feel like you have a private life and a public life that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Now, some of you in this room, you're going like, I don't even know, like maybe I don't know the calling to which I've been called yet. Can you please explain that? I'm so glad you asked. Yes, I can. I would love to. All right, so he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So we would go, what in the world is that? What is this calling to which I've been called? Here's how I'm gonna explain it and do my best to try to unpack it. So the calling is this, it's twofold. The calling is to oneness and holiness. Oneness is made evident in unity, all right? So the fact that, that we, as a, as a collective group of people, remember, uh, don't Americanize a letter to a church in an ancient world. The church is a group of people, not an individual. One of the biggest things that we're gonna have to overcome as an American church is our rugged individualism. The fact that we wanna take a, a Bible book that was written to a group of people and make it about us. And Paul goes, no, this is about, not you, this is about all of yous. And he says, the primary things that we've been called to, and you'll see how one of these is public and one of these is more private, You've been called to oneness, to live at one with your fellow man. Because you've been made at one with God through him giving his only begotten son, you're now one with that God. You're now one with that father. So go out and live in the reconciliation that you've received from that God. So live in unity. And the second half of the calling is to holiness and purity. And this is the way they break down as far as the verses go. In verses one through 16, he explains to them, what in the world is this oneness? And what in the world is this unity? And how do we begin to live this out? How have we been called to this? And then the rest of uh, 417 through 521, he talks about this personal call that he's put on their individual lives to live pure, holy, separated lives. And so that's what we're gonna dive into. Uh, we'll, we'll get into holiness and purity as we journey through this. We'll probably spend the next few weeks though, leaning into the aspect of the call that is oneness and unity. It's verses one through 16. So first of all, he calls them as a church to unity, calls them to unity, to be connected. 
And this unity is, is oneness. This unity is knowing that they've been reconciled to God and reconciled to each other, that they're a diverse group of people and they're a new people. What Paul doesn't say is it's not Jews adapting to become more like Gentiles. It's not Gentiles adapting to become more like Jews. He's saying, no, this is a brand new thing. It's Jew and Gentile, young and old, rich and poor, blue collar, white collar, and everything in between. Every ethnicity is now made one new thing in Christ. Not a family based off of last names, but a family based on the name above all names. And Paul is calling to work out horizontally between each other what God has already worked in on a vertical plane. Now, I want to camp out here and talk to MCC specifically. And if you're new to MCC, hopefully this gives you a little bit of our heartbeat uh, on display. You get to kind of see the, what is that thing with the beep, beep? What's that machine called? Heart monitor. That was easy enough. Yeah. I want to call it something way more complicated than that. So you get to see our heart monitor today. And forgive me as your pastor for not leading into this earlier and more often. We navigated as a pretty diverse already church. You know, you look around at MCC and again, we're not all white church, we're not all black church, we're not all rich church, we're not all poor church, we're not all young church, we're not an old church. We're a little bit of everything. Praise God. We made it through a really crazy time. I don't know if you guys remember this, but like 2020, 2021, and even a little bit of 2022 right here has been wild. Like we had an election, like it was wild. And there were thing after thing after thing after thing to be divided on. And if you weren't paying attention, almost everything was also divided along the lines of race too. And we're a church that is not one race. We're a church that is not one ethnicity. We're a church that is not one party. And somehow, and again, we didn't do it perfectly. There were mistakes that we made along the way, but somehow this whole thing didn't burn to the ground. And somehow we're not one race right now. Somehow we're not one party right now. Somehow we're not one age. The diversity that we had pre a very divisive time is still here. And I just say, thank you. Because I honestly, I've had these conversations with our staff. It would have been in our elder team. It would have been much easier to lead an all black church. It would have been much easier to lead an all white church. When it came to those things where we had to make those decisions, we could have just said, hey, we're all gonna close down because everybody who looks this, everybody who comes here thinks the same way. When we were going through elections, it would have been easier for us to turn the pulpit into a place of politics because everybody thinks the same way. And we could have rallied each other around the same thing because we all were the same. It would have been easier to do that. When it came to, should we open up? Should we close? Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? If everybody thought the same way and felt the same way, it would have made my job and the elder's job so much easier. But you know what all of you guys had? Opinions. (laughs) And diverse, different opinions. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ, that we all did have those. And so it grew us as a congregation. And let me tell you the reason this worked. Leading a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-political party church, old and young as well, it is messy. If you talk to any pastor around the world who leads a diverse church, they will unequivocally tell you, this is a messy endeavor. You're gonna have people who say stupid things and don't even realize how stupid they are. You're gonna have people who can see all the wrongs in other people, but never in their own self. It's going to be messy, but I wanna commend you church. And again, we didn't get it perfect. I wanna commend you though. You as a church, you prioritize our mission over the fact that it was messy at times. So thank you. And in doing so, you allowed us to maintain a level of unity here that was not apparent at a lot of churches all around the city, 
all around the state and even all around the world. So thank you. But hear me, if we're gonna continue to be like this, we're gonna have to continue to prioritize that. We're gonna have to continue to prioritize our mission as a church over the messiness that we're gonna wade into by being a church with young, old, rich, poor, black, white, and everything in between. Are you guys okay with that? Thank you, all right? I am too. And I'm really looking forward to leading in that because I think it fires me up, honestly. And here's why. Satan could care less how big of a church we are. Honestly, like, I don't think Satan really gets like super nervous about a, at a giant all black church. I don't think he's really terrified of a giant all black church, a giant all white church, a giant all Republican church or a giant Democrat church. I think the thing that Satan is most terrified is of, who, honestly, who cares what size? The thing he's most scared of is not a big church. It's a unified church. A church that despite what, what, who we're voting for, despite vaccines or despite masks or despite uh, whatever's going on in that city or what we're supposed to think about that or whatever new thing we're supposed to hashtag, despite all of that, if the church can stay unified, what he sees is they prioritize their God over their culture. And that, and that changes everything because now he knows that they're getting their identity from God and not from race, politics, money, age, any of that. Now, all of those things are good. They're, they're, they're things that are essential to our life. And you can learn some different things about people. I'm not saying we throw all those away, but we have to put them in priorities. And man, I, I, I know that there's more to come that's not gonna be easy to navigate, but I'm excited about navigating that with us together. So let's talk about what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all like the same things. It doesn't mean we all think the same way. It doesn't mean we do all the same things the way we think we should do them. It's kind of like marriage. Think about it from this side of things. In marriage, you get married and the, some of the immediate tension you enter into in marriage is based around you really, and you may not say this out loud, you don't put in your vows, but you want them to think and do things like you do things, right? And, you, and, you, and you, the, the thing when you look at them, you're like, why do you do that? You know, let's just take a simple example of something that, you know, it's just this there, you know, like toothpaste. You know, like I'm, not, I'm, I'm a naturally probably lean towards being a more messy individual, right? You know, I, I, like my brain is somewhat in order. I have my thoughts. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of strict here with this side of stuff. But for most of my life, I could really care less if the room is a mess. Like my mind is pretty neat. But there's one thing that I, I try to keep neat and I, and I hate for it to be messy and it's toothpaste. I, I squeeze from the bottom I like for the whole entire top to not have any toothpaste on it. I, I, I pay close special attention to squeeze it out just enough to where only toothpaste gets on my bristles and none is left on the cap and it's all disgusting. I don't do that. Now, my beautiful wife, she loves a clean house. She can't, probably can't rest and, and relax unless the house and that environment is clean. I'm the total opposite. But when it comes to toothpaste, and again, we get the big, like this long toothpaste from Costco and Jessica just monkey grabs that thing right in the middle. <laughs> she grabs it right in the middle and it's hanging. Like you, I pick it up and it's like nunchucks. <laughs> and I just swing the toothpaste around and that's our toothpaste. And what's crazy, we laugh about this, but there are churches in our city, in our country, in our state who have divided and split along to, like the marriage equivalent of toothpaste. You know, you, if I told you to tell me a story about a church, you know, splitting over something really stupid. You, everybody in this room, you've got one of those. And, and, and most of us in the room, if I started asking questions, really digging deep, I could find, what, I could find your toothpaste. 
your thing that if we ever started doing, and again, there's nothing in the Bible about it, but if we ever started doing that thing or we stopped doing whatever that thing is, you'd be like, oh no, I'm getting divorced. You know, like <laughs> we all have our things. And see what God is calling us to is to say, okay, check uniformity out. We can have unified diversity. We can be unified in Christ without being exactly the same. Oneness is not sameness. Paul goes on from there and he begins to explain how in the world this unity happens. In verse two, he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another and love. Let's, let's just stay right there. And, and before we start picking them apart individually, just realize the nature of these things, right? How many of you with people who you love, who agree with you, think like you think, and they're just like, they have all the same opinions you have. Do you really need a whole lot of patience with them? Do you really need to bear with them a whole lot? You got to humble yourself to be able to navigate conversations with them. Do you have to, you know, really put on your gentleness when you're around them? No. See, the very fact that this is what Paul says, hey, I need you to maintain unity it's almost implied that you're gonna be around messy people who think different than you, act different than you, and do things in a different way than you do. Why else would you need humility, gentleness, patience, and to bear with one another in love? Except for the fact that it's gonna be hard to do life with people who are much different than you, which is crazy because so many times we run into situations, and man, this is what, this, I think this is it's hard in the church world. We bump into differences. And this is what you don't realize when you surround yourself in an echo chamber of people who think like you do, vote like you do, spend money like you do, is you miss out on, this is almost, this is like a, kind of like a list of the fruit of the spirit, right? Some of these are actual fruit of the spirit. And so what Paul is saying here is if you put yourself in an echo chamber or if you put yourself in, a, in an environment that's all white, all rich, all black, all poor, all young, all old. If you put yourself in an environment like that, you're missing out on an opportunity to actually see the fruit of the spirit of patience and gentleness and humility and bearing with one another actually come to, come to fruition in your life because you're not having a, you don't have a need to even practice those things because everybody agrees with you. And so he says, if you're gonna really be this church, that displays the manifold wisdom of God through its unity, not just to the onlooking world, but even the supernatural spiritual world, then you've got to be one in Christ. So he breaks it down. First of all, he says, with all humility, you gotta humble yourself. You're gonna, we're gonna have to get over ourselves and our opinions. And we're gonna have to lay pride aside. A few verses on this that I think are mission critical for us to get as far as humility goes. This is Jesus talking about who he is and his very nature. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, well, what are we learning here? Well, here's what we're learning. Here's who he is. He says, I am gentle and humble. Gentle and humble in heart. And he says, if you come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. Y'all tired? See, I think some of the reason we, we fail to realize why we're really tired and really worn out is because we're not humble. Maybe you've never made the connection here. You wear, you're worn out because you're in a race to the front of the line. Jesus says, hey, if you want to be great, be last. If, if you want to uh, experience what real life is, lose it. See, what he's saying here is this Christian walk is a race to the back of the line where everybody else is calling shotgun, trying to sit up front. You're calling backseat middle. That's where I want to be. He says, 
That's where you hear me. That's where you feel me. That's where you sense me. Because I'm the same way. I'm gentle and humble. I was willing, not just willing, I, I went. I was eager to go to the back of the line for you so that you could be connected with God. He goes on from there. And, uh, Peter gives me a, a kind of graphic verse here, but still really good on this topic of humility. He says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility. This idea of clothing yourself is this humility should be what other people see first in you. The same way you walk in, I can tell, you know, that guy right there, uh, Royce has got a kind of turquoise shirt. You know, there's a bright blue one right there. I can kind of pick out the blues in the audience. Like it's the first thing I notice. He, he's saying, clothe yourself with humility in such a way that it's one of the very first things that people ever realize about you. Clothe yourself in humility. And then he tells you why. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know whose bad side you want to be on. But I can say with a shadow of a doubt, you don't want to be on God's bad side. You don't want him to oppose you. And there's very few things in the New Testament that God says, like, if you do this, I'm opposing you. New Testament, a lot of grace, a lot of love, a lot of mercy, a lot of tenderness, a lot of forgiveness. But pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. And God doesn't put up with it. And the word there, the Greek word there for oppose, I mean, college football season is getting ready to start. It implies this, I'm, God is lining up on the other side of the ball than you are. And you don't, you don't want to run that drill with him. You get pancaked every time. And he says, but here's what I'll do though. I'll lift you up if you humble yourself. If you're willing to put yourself down, I'm willing to pick you up. I, I look forward to picking you up, but I only pick up the ones who are putting themselves down. And I'm not talking about this self-deprecating, like, oh, I'm just a worm and I'm dirt. You know, like, no, the, again, it, it's, if you want to see what this really looks like, it's, it's Matthew 10, 45 or Mark 10, 45. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. That's what it looks like. That's what humility looks like. And that's what greatness comes from. Another one on this, um, Philippians chapter two, which is really just a masterclass in what humility is. Philippians 2, 3, I could have given you the entire chapter of Philippians here for the sake of time. I'm just gonna give you verse three. He says, do nothing. And that Greek word there for nothing means nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value. This is a big word right here. Some of you need to go meditate on, what, on this verse right here and you need to figure out what in the world that value means. Humility, in humility, value others above yourself. From humility, then he goes to gentleness. And humility and gentleness are really this one-two punch. If humility is kind of this internal essence, then gentleness is when that humility comes out into actual action. The, when I close my eyes and I try to see gentleness, I, I just see this, you know, speaking of football, this, who was number 99 for the Georgia Bulldogs? He's an absolute giant. Somebody say out loud. Gordon Davis, okay? He's an absolute giant. I went to the Georgia-Georgia Tech game, they drilled Georgia Tech. It was a really bad game. We left it like third quarter because it was just, that was way bad. Anyway, this kid, and like he looks big on TV. He's a monster in person. Just an absolute gigantic human being. I get this picture of Jordan Davis with a newborn baby. Just tapping his butt. Boom. This giant with all of that strength that can tear a man to shreds, that can put even the biggest man on his butt. Just nice. I got all this power, but I got it under control. See, that's what God is saying. He said, if you have this humility in your heart, what happens? You get lifted up. That means God pours more of himself into you, more of the power of God is active and available in your life because you're humbling yourself. And what happens then is 
you don't get lifted up by God, get raised to new levels so that you can just go, oh, I'm God's person. I'm God's favorite. I'm, God. I'm the head and not the tail. This is who I am. God doesn't lift you up for that place. God lifts you up so that you can, so that people can go. Same way like if, if, if Jordan Davis was, was holding a baby going, man, look at that. They could do so much more. There's so much power there. But the true awe-inspiring aspect of it is how much under control it is. And that's just not our society right now. We're anything but gentle. We're quick to jump the gun. We'll cancel you in a heartbeat. Like we're not gonna be gentle with you. We were actually having this conversation the other, uh, last night um, with some people about the, like how terrified we are of raising teenagers. Like we have kids that are you know, elementary age right now. And we were even talking about like how dangerous it is to, to have like, when we were kids, when I was a teenager, like if you wanna break up with somebody, you just like send them a note. And, you, and sometimes man, and again, you, you've been around kids. Sometimes it could be mean. But today's day and age, a high school boy or a high school girl breaks up with somebody of the opposite sex and they do it anything but gentle. There's no telling what could happen if I'm scorned by you. I can post anything I want to about you on social media and everybody will believe it and you'll get canceled and you're guilty until you're proven innocent. So we have to teach people gentleness because the world will respond in a terrible, and we've already seen this, terrible, awful ways when it's not handled with grace and truth and gentleness from a humble side. Even if your truth is right, even if the point you're making is real and evident, you married men in the room, you know this, it is not what you say. It is how you say it. And that's, that's the same thing for us if we wanna be able to maintain the bond of unity. We have to do it with gentleness. Next one is uh, patience. The Greek word there for patience is this word makrothumos. It's a compound word again. Macro means long. And then thumos is where we get the word thermometer. It's this thermometer and heat. It's basically saying patience is the ability to have a, make it take a long time for you to get hot. To where you, somebody can be river dancing on your last nerve and you're just taking it. He said, that's this patience. You gotta have this. You gotta be patient with people. Somebody asked me, what, was, what were your years in student ministry like? And I always just say it was like walking in circles with people for the glory of God. Because kids would get it one day and the next day they wouldn't. And then once they started really getting it, their parents wouldn't. I was just walking in circles for the glory of God. It's being patient. And that's why God made me a youth pastor before an adult pastor because he knew how much I would need that patience with you guys. I'm just kidding, I love you. And the last thing he says is um, forbearance, which is just like bearing with people. And, and, and <laughs> you ever met somebody like in a good way who has the spiritual gift of ignoring things and not letting them get to them? Who people can be talking, they've got a, they've got a crowd full of haters or people who are, who are talking bad about them or maybe don't believe in them or second guessing the things that they say, but they have this supernatural ability to be able to bear that and to not let that get to them. Now, again, I'm not talking about just ignoring people for the sake of ignoring them. That's not a supernatural spiritual gift. That's just being a jerk. But forbearance is going, I'm less concerned with what you said and I'm more concerned with your jacked up heart behind it. And I'm gonna continue to pray for you. I know that here's, here's one of your, my life rules. Seldom is the issue the issue. 
somebody spitting hot fire at you probably doesn't have a whole lot to do with you. You have no idea what's going on behind the scenes in their life. So bear with them. Bear with your church. He says, the last thing is do all this in love, which I think is Paul's nod to Jesus to say, hey, when it comes to patience, when it comes to gentleness, when it comes to humility, when it comes to bearing with people, you got to look to Jesus because that's where all of those things were truly embodied. That's where we see Jesus being continually humble and going to a cross and dying for us. That's where we see Jesus handling our sins in a gentle way by not saying, go clean yourself up and then come find me, but gently saying, come in. All who are who are burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. It gives me joy to give you rest. And he gently invites us all in. And has he been patient with you? Goodness gracious, he's been patient with you. He's been patient with me. He's long suffering. He sees the sins that I've continued to struggle with for the majority of my adult life and says, we're gonna get through this. Stick with me. I'll be patient with you. I'm not giving up on you. Don't give up on me. He bears with us. He bears with my complaining. He bears with me asking him over and over and over again for things he knows that will hurt me and disrupt the plan he has for my life. Same way he does for you. Now, the last point I'll make on this is if when you look at your life, you see an absence of you being able to give out humility to people. You see an absence of you being gentle with people and you're quick to just shoot out a smart aleck remark. You see an absence of you being able to bear with people and you see an absence of love. Here's why maybe that's happening. You can't give what you have not received. And some of your hangup may be that you truly haven't felt and received the humility of Jesus towards you. You have not felt and received the gentleness of Jesus towards you. And you think he's just out there just looking at you down his brow, just being like, you get, get your crap together. Like that's not who he is. You haven't felt him just bearing with you and actually coming up under what you're bearing and going, hey, um, Actually, you're not carrying all this. I've, I've been carrying this for like the last quarter and I got this still. So we're, we're never gonna be able to give this out to each other and, and maintain unity as a church if you aren't first receiving this from Jesus in your own personal times of prayer with him, if you don't see him as a humble, gentle, patient, forbearing savior to you, we have no hope of giving that to each other because we have not gotten it from him. And that's why Paul says all the things he does in chapters one through three, so that we can hopefully get that about who he is and his identity so that we can then give it to each other. He goes on from there, verse we'll end with today. He says, we do all this. And then this is what our attitude should be and be in doing those things. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. To which maybe at best, I think the American church is maybe willing, like we're willing like, I'm willing to give you a ride to work tomorrow. I'm not really jazzed about it. I know gas is like $17 a gallon. You know, I'm, I'm willing. I'm not really crazy about the idea, though. And when it comes to conflict, that's kind of how a lot of us are. Like, you already have enough conflict in your life personally. When you bump into conflict interrelationally, isn't it easy just to go like, ah, I'm just going to never talk to you again. Ah, <laughs> uh, and, and again, we bash on cancel culture all we want. But how many of you have canceled people? 
I, I'm done with that relationship. I'm, I'm, I'm through pursuing. I'm through talking. I'm through digging in deeper. If they want it, they can come talk to me. And our only hope of being able to do this, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace is seeing that it was Jesus who we're following after. That is Jesus himself who was eager to attain the unity of the spirit. Because that word right there is maintain, not attain. So I want to take you to this passage. Hebrews, one of my absolute favorite. Hebrews 12, 2. Paul's writing to the church there, the Hebrew people, and he's trying to help them understand how to be able to live this life out, how to be able to maintain the unity and understand what God has truly done in us. And he says, look to Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who? For the joy that was set before him. Hold up, stop, wait a minute. What did Jesus go and do? He went to a cross. He was crucified. One of the the worst physically abusive forms of human torture that was ever created. He has his beard pulled out. He has a crown of thorns put on his head. He has his, his, his back whipped with a cat of nine tails to the place where it looks like bloody hamburger meat just laid open with organs showing. He gets foot over foot, hand stretched out as far as the east to the west, nailed to a cross through the joints in his wrists. And we're talking about this is joy that was before him. How does this happen? Where does this come from? Well, friends, this Jesus was willing to receive the full weight and be treated like an enemy of God so that you could experience unity with God. And it was the joy, this joy in being willing to go to the cross, to suffer that pain, to suffer that abandonment, to take on all your impurity so that you could now live in unity and impurity with God. He takes all of that on. He says, I was eager to do that. You were the joy set before him. The joy set before him was not just your salvation, but the joy set before him was the church. To say, I'm willing to be divided and fractured, to have my body be torn apart so that this church, so that the church of McDonough Christian could be one. That's understanding what he did is our only hope and how eager he was to do it is our only hope about being eager to maintain the bond of peace. So the next time you have a hard time being peaceful with somebody at church, see your savior bound, led up a hill called Golgotha, taking a cross for you so that you could experience the bond of unity, the bond of peace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, as we get ready to close. I'm going to invite us into uh, what, what the team and I have called an odd is good moment. For some of you in this room, you have never experienced your unity and being at peace with God. You're, you're still an enemy of God. And some of you in this room, you've never placed your faith and trust in him. And I think the Bible makes it really clear when it talks about live a life or walk in a way that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The first step of that walk, I believe, is, is baptism. To say, if, if I really understand this call and I put my faith in this call, then my first step is into the water of baptism. Now we're getting ready, after we sing a song, we're gonna see uh, two girls get, we're gonna see some young women of God get baptized. It's gonna be awesome. We're gonna celebrate with angels in heaven today. But some of you here today, like your call, the call that God's walking, walking you into is a call to baptism. And I know that's, that's odd, right? Like some of you showed up today, like you're gonna go home potentially wet. You're gonna put on um, a different pair of underwear because we have all of that already prepared for you to get baptized today. 
Now, is that odd? Were you expecting that to happen today? Goodness, no. But if our God is our God, then it's okay to have something odd happen when you gather with him. Nobody was expecting to get baptized in Acts 2. They showed up to listen to this guy, Peter, talk. And then 3,000 people did. And I'm willing to bet that there's somebody here today who knows that if I'm gonna walk in a way worthy of the calling to which I've received, then my walk needs to take me into the waters of baptism where I am buried with Christ. My old life is crucified and I'm resurrected and raised up as new to actually live. And I have the power by the Holy Spirit inside of me now to live this life, to live a life worthy of this calling that I've received. And as that's happening, two things are gonna be going on. A lot of times at church, maybe you grew up, you know, churches do altar calls. You guys remember that? Altar calls happen. And, and usually, I and mean, again, I don't know what you thought in your mind when altar calls happen, um, but I'd watch the person go forward. This is maybe before I really understood Jesus is like I do now, but somebody would go forward. And then, I don't know, you guys are super holy. So you probably never think thoughts like this, but you think, oh man, what's, go- what's really going on in their life right now? Oh man, well, yeah. Or some people go down, you're like, yeah, they, uh, okay, about time. For real. And then you, you saintly, usually it's women, you saintly women are like, okay, I'm gonna go up there and just put my hand on her shoulder. And you go up and you pray with her. And those are all awesome, great things. God does amazing work through those things. But today what I'm inviting to is not the individual thing. Paul's writing to a church, a whole group of people. And he says, I want you all, y'all to live a life to walk in a way worthy of the calling to which y'all have received. And so today what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna invite y'all to take this step and to walk this way, to step across the line and commit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to family unity. And that's not, that's capital F family. That's not just saying you're gonna unify with your mom and dad, brother and uncle and sister and your dog. That's talking about this family. We're gonna, I'm committing today to step across the line and boldly say from this day forward, I will walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've received. And that's a calling to family unity because I'm part of the family of God by the blood of Christ. And it's a call to personal purity. And so what this is gonna look like is as we get ready to sing this song, and it's a song I've decided to follow Jesus. You've probably heard it before. It's a cross before me, the world behind me. Though none go with me, still I will follow. And today we're actually not the case we'll all go with you because we're all going to go together. And I invite you, if you're bold enough, you're brave enough, all across the floor in here, there's a red line, red symbolizing the blood of Christ. I'm going to invite you to take a bold step. Look down when you cross it, take a bold step across that line and symbolically say with your feet and with your faith today, from this day forward, I'm stepping across the line into living a life worthy of the calling to which I've received. And I'm going to walk into that today. Not by myself, been a great cloud of witnesses, my brothers and sisters. And I believe God's gonna do something in your faith today to make this a moment you never forget. Because that's what living an odd is good because God is good life is all about. So last thing, if you wanna get baptized today, I will baptize you today. We have everything that we need to, don't make excuses. If you wanna get baptized today or you feel like that's what God's leading you to, I'm gonna be up here, come and talk to me. For everybody else, I invite you to come. 
together we'll sing in this area right here. We try to make it as big as possible so that everybody can step across this line. Now, if you're one of these people in the front row, so you're gonna have to kind of move all the way up. Okay, if we get people on the, you guys can stand on these things. They're not holy. Like God's not gonna strike you down for standing on the black part. Like if you gotta get up here, you can. It goes all the way back there. But let's try to get as many people across the line as we can. And again, if you can't make it across the line, know that just getting up out of your chair and moving forward, you can let one of those uh, free throw line be your lines. It's fine. But I want as many people to take that step across the line today as possible. Because I believe God's gonna, when we put our faith in motion and our body actually does something, it solidifies something in our spirit so that you can never forget it. And the next time you feel tempted to walk away, you remember the time when you stepped across the line and you walked in a manner worthy of the calling you received. And you do it with your family. Let me pray for you. And if you wanna get baptized, come talk to me. If you wanna step across the line into that family unity and personal purity, walk forward and we'll sing our song together. Jesus, we love you. Move in the hearts and lives of your people. In your name, amen.